we are going to open up with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this cool evening and for the change of seasons. Lord, we pray that as we come tonight with so many different things on our minds, that you would help us to put aside anything that would distract us and that you would open our hearts to the things of your kingdom tonight. Lord, we thank you for this book and for the wisdom that is in it. We thank you especially for your word of scripture that we will be examining as well and pray that you would help us as we look at this material to be drawn more and more to your kingdom and to be conformed more and more to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the music tonight is uh, something that might be familiar. <laughs> if you were in the service, you just heard this, but just in case you did not know that it is All Saints Day, it is All Saints Day, and I'm going to send this video uh, in the email because it is a glorious thing. Uh, some of you may be aware that one of the things that was a long tradition with the BBC was something called the Big Sing, where they would pack 5,000 people into Royal Albert Hall in London, uh, including a lot of choirs, and they would sing favorite hymns, and it is glorious. So um, I will send you that uh, in the email. And as we get started tonight, let's say our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a word of welcome to anyone who is new tonight, whether you're here in person or you're on the live stream or in podcast land. We are delighted to have you with us. And just a word again about how to approach this class. Uh, there are three levels you can be matriculating at. Uh, you can be on the beach, which means you do virtually nothing at all except occasionally show up. If that's all you want to do, that's great. Uh, if you want to snorkel, which is to go deep on the parts that you find interesting, that is great as well. Or if you want to scuba dive and follow uh, all of the links that I send out and read all of the really long handouts and all of that, that is great as well. But at whatever level you want to engage, that is all good. Uh, but I would encourage you, if you are not currently on the email list, if you're here in person, please sign up for that. Uh, if you are out uh, listening to us online somewhere, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, South Carolina, um, in the United States, and that will get you to our website. You can just shoot me an email, and I will get you added to the list. So we are delighted to have uh, lots of folks that follow us online. So one of the things that we've been talking about with this particular book is that one of the reasons that it is a work of genius is that it is operating simultaneously at three levels. 
And it's really important to keep this in the front of your mind all the way through reading the book because all three of these levels are happening all the way through the whole story. So the first thing that it's doing is it's operating as a great culmination of all of the Narnia stories. So it brings those children's stories to an end and ties up all of the loose ends. But it also is a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the fall, um, Genesis 3, the means of grace and the glory of heaven. And it is also a parable about following Jesus that is remarkably applicable to 21st century America, and particularly the idea of truth and the idea of word with a capital W. So we will be trying to unpack all of those things. Uh, just a reminder, uh, as we go into the story, Lewis and Tolkien did not believe in writing stories just because it was fun, although they did have lots of fun writing their stories. They were up to something, and what they were up to was trying to, as Lewis put it in his letter to Sister Penelope, smuggling theology into people's minds uh, past the watchful dragons of the mind through the power of story. And that is very much what is going on uh, in this book, really in all the Chronicles of Narnia. We've talked about the imagery uh, in this book, um, the main character of the ape, Apes in literature are often mischievous, not to be trusted, uh, and very associated with this idea of progressivism and Darwinism and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, of course, this ape says, I am a man, in the face of all the evidence that he is actually an ape. So a little bit of a problem with that. Then we have the donkey, uh, who's going to keep showing up as a major figure. Um, the humble beast, the one that we see in the story of Jesus' birth, and then Jesus' passion. But then also in Numbers 22, in that great story of Balaam's ass, the only person, well, not person, the only character uh, with spiritual insight in the midst of what's going on there in the book of Numbers. We will have parallels to Genesis 3. We talked about the Proto-Evangelium, that Genesis 3.15, that promise right in the midst of the story of the fall that God will provide a way to save his people. Uh, and then this whole idea of reverence for woods and trees uh, is going to continue to be part of what we explore here. So chapter 3, we talked about the ape and his glory and then moved into chapter 4 where the rightful king of Narnia is tied to a tree, and there's this beautiful and poignant scene where all of the animals come and minister to him. Uh, I keep saying this every week, but if you haven't read that part, please go read it, because it really is just amazingly beautifully done with the mice hanging by their tails to climb up with little cups of wine. Uh, it's just really great. And Aslan uh, is not present, we see this sort of shadow Aslan, but Tyrion is convinced that that's not the real Aslan, and as he gets progressively more desperate, he starts crying out to Aslan, and he cries out not just for himself, but for Aslan to come and save Narnia. 
And then he has this vision of another world where he sees this old couple and then people all the way down to children, seven of them sitting around and he thinks, boy, they have on such weird clothes. And he's so excited because he thinks maybe these are the people that have come to the rescue and these other stories. And so he's all ready to give his plea for help and finds he is utterly mute and unable to speak. And this miracle that seems to have happened um, begins to fade away and the faces fade away and he's left tied to the tree and wet with the morning dew and cold and alone. It's very, very sad. And so we talked about in chapter four um, a number of themes, uh, the loneliness and suffering of the king for doing the right thing, the love and loyalty of those talking beasts, the emptiness of false religion, the connection of faith and self-sacrifice, prayer and hope, stepping out in faith and the miraculous, and then the whole idea of prayer, waiting, and disappointment. So in all my spare time, I would love to write a little meditation on prayer based on what happens here, because there's great scriptural wisdom in it. So uh, one of the things that we talked about last time was this whole idea of prayer and waiting and disappointment. And Tyrion has gone through all of what he went through, crying out and having this vision. And then Peter, one of the people in the dream that he sees, actually says to Tyrion, you have a Narnian look about you. I am Peter, the high king. If you are from Narnia, I charge you in the name of Aslan, speak to me. I mean, what a great setup. And then Tyrion can't speak. Can you imagine all of his hopes, everything that he thinks the miracle has happened and it's all going to work out, and then it just all completely falls apart. And then there's that line, that waking was about the worst moment he had ever had in his life. So one of the things as we think about this prayer, waiting, and disappointment, it is something that is part and parcel of the Christian life. If you have been a Christian for any period of time, there will have been times where you prayed and prayed and prayed and you were disappointed. And this is something that you see in the scriptures. One of the things I love about the book of Psalms is it's very raw. It's very honest. Uh, there's a great Lewis book on the Psalms uh, that I would commend to you called Reflections on the Psalms. But this part from Psalm 88, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And this could have really been Tyrion's prayer right in this moment of not understanding. And so often that happens. Uh, we feel like uh, in the face of all the evidence to the contrary that we ought to be able to completely understand the ways of God. Well, that doesn't really work out very well because God is so infinitely bigger and wiser and stronger than we are. 
uh, that we are never going to fully understand. But there's a beautiful book uh, that I would also commend on prayer that Lewis wrote that's called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. And it is a, it's not real correspondence, but Lewis uses the medium of these letters to give some good instruction about prayer. And he says this, our struggle is, isn't it, to achieve and retain faith on a lower level, to believe that there is a listener at all. For as the situation grows more and more desperate, the grisly fears intrude. Are we only talking to ourselves in an empty universe? The silence is often so emphatic and we have prayed so much already. And I think many of us have found ourselves in that place. And Lewis understands that. And you're going to see as we go through this book that there, there are little tidbits about prayer all through the last battle. And there's a great section in Mere Christianity about prayer as well where Lewis says this, I don't know why there is this difference, but I'm sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. Now, you remember last week we talked about how impatient we are, how we do not like to wait for anything, and yet the scriptures are full of this injunction to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord's timing. Uh, you'll remember we talked about that Mumford and Son song, I Will Wait, uh, which I would commend to you to think about. So Lewis goes on to say, when you do enter your room, you will find that the long wait has done you some kind of good which you would not have had otherwise. And what he's talking about here, this is in the preface to Mere Christianity, and he says, when you are coming to faith in Christ, the first hurdle is to believe in Jesus and to follow him. And then once you've gone through that door, you find yourself in this long hallway and it's a beautiful hallway, and it's warm, and it's not frightening like being out in the cold, cruel world. But all along this hallway, there are doors. And each of those doors represents different expressions of the Christian faith, different denominations, different ministries. And he says that what you have to do is to wait in the hall until you are guided as to which door you need to go to. But he said it is inside those doors that everything that's worth having can be found, that that is where the joy is, that is where the fellowship is, that is where uh, all of the good things of the Christian faith are. But he said the problem is you have to wait in the hall to discern which of those doors to go through. But the problem comes here. He said, you must regard it as waiting, not as camping. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. And part of what Lewis is getting at here so often uh, when we have a major decision in front of us, whether it is something where we're seeking guidance about a job or a relationship or some crisis or something like that, we're stuck in this waiting mode. 
And what Lewis is saying here is we have to wait actively. We have to pray. We have to lean into it. We can't camp out and decide, well, I'm just going to stay in this place right here uh, because it's kind of comfortable. And he also says when you're in that waiting period, you need to be obedient to the revealed word of God. So what God promises you, God also commands in his word that there are things that all Christians are supposed to do. And sometimes when we're waiting on some big decision, we kind of take a vacation from obedience. And what Lewis is saying here is that we need to stay constant. We know it is the will of God for us to pray. We know it is the will of God for us to be in scripture. We know that it is the will of God for us to be in fellowship, all those things that we need to keep doing what we know is right. So that brings us to chapter five. And as the story starts, Tyrion is still tied to the tree, still very sad and achy. And all of a sudden, there are two loud booms and sitting in front of him are the youngest boy and the youngest girl out of this dream vision. So all of that disappointment quickly changes to great joy that there has been this amazing thing that has happened, except, do you think he really wanted the youngest boy and the youngest girl as his help? I mean, like maybe the High King Peter might have been better, or maybe even an adult might have been better, but we get these children that are not even teenagers yet are the ones that arrive. It reminds me of that old joke about the guy who is in the flood and is praying for God to rescue him, and a boat comes and says, please let us help you, and he's like, no, I'm waiting on the Lord, and then an airplane helicopter guy comes with a ladder, and he says, please let let us get you off this roof. The guy's like, no, I'm waiting on the Lord. And then the guy drowns and he gets to St. Peter's gate and he's like, Lord, I was waiting on you. And the Lord says, well, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. What more do you want? And here, this is not what Tyrion wanted. But Jill and Eustace introduce themselves. They free Tyrion from captivity and they start comparing history with him. And when that happens, he starts feeling better about it because although they don't know it, Eustace and Jill, these preteen children, are legendary heroes in Narnia. Even their names are known and passed down from generation to generation. So they escape and they go to a Narnian guard tower and before they do anything else, they put on armor and disguises so they're prepared for whatever may happen next. So there are a couple of themes we're going to look at. First, prayer is not always answered in the way we expect. God's time and our time are not at all the same. Wisdom means preparing for trouble before it occurs. Fellowship with other believers with shared experiences brings joy and insight. Obedience involves both prayer and action, and diligence in being prepared results in blessing. So there is a lot to unpack in here, so we'll see 
whether we manage to get through all of it. So first, prayer is not always answered in the way we expect. I'm sure all of us could testify to that. So, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so, Tyrion says in the chapter, but his misery did not last long. Almost at once there came a bump and then a second bump and two children were standing before him. The wood in front of him had been quite empty a second before and he knew they had not come from behind his tree for he would have heard them. They had in fact simply appeared from nowhere. He saw at a glance that they were wearing the same queer, dingy sort of clothes as the people in his dream. And he saw at a second glance that they were the youngest boy and girl out of that party of seven. So just imagine that you are trying to flee for your life from a group of marauding armed enemies who are chasing after you and you pray for help and a little boy and a little girl appear. Aren't you excited? And you're like, well, now I've got them to take care of as well. Uh, it does not seem like a net gain, but we'll see what happens. So here are some scriptures. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And then, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. And then this great verse from Matthew. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And all of this is saying we need to learn to trust that the Lord knows what he is doing. Uh, and then this great passage out of 1 Samuel, uh, and this is when Samuel has gone to select a successor for Saul, and he's been told to go to the sons of Jesse, and there are many of them, so they all are paraded out one by one. When they came, Samuel the prophet looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And there's a deep truth in that. This is the same idea that Tolkien is playing with in The Lord of the Rings, where you see this very unlikely cast of characters who are joined together in the Fellowship of the Ring, and it's not all the giant big warrior people, which is what you would think you would want, but as the story unfolds, you see how each one of those people, even the smallest, plays an absolutely critical part that no one else could have played in order to accomplish the quest. But Jesus said, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. The poor disciples. Remember, this is when there's this huge crowd of people that have been following Jesus. They haven't had anything to eat. The disciples haven't brought anything to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And so they go and they corral this little kid. And it's basically, it's not quite clear whether he gives them his lunch or they steal his lunch. Uh, <laughs> 
But in any event, they get five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And it was a miracle and God did not do what was expected. Jesus didn't rain down manna on them. He didn't rain down quail. He took what there was, which was small and inadequate, and in a way that no one could have even conceptualized, he used that to do something miraculous. So part of this uh, that we see in Lewis's own life is that he had deep experience of prayer not being answered in the way that he would expect. Lewis's spiritual autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. And that is how Lewis described his conversion from atheism to faith in Jesus Christ. He had never expected that there would be any connection between God and joy. When he became uh, on the verge of conversion, he really thought that it would be exactly the opposite. He knew it was true, he was gonna do it because it was true, but it was gonna kill him because it would be so awful. And so in his uh, autobiography, he says, for all I knew, the total rejection of what I called joy might be one of the demands. But convinced that the Christian faith was true, Lewis admitted that God was God, and he said, I knelt by my bed and prayed at that moment the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But to his great surprise, he found that following Jesus was exactly the opposite of what he expected. He experienced great joy through his new faith. He discovered that the heart of reality is found in the person of Jesus. He was surprised by that joy. Lewis also had been very surprised in his friendships. Uh, when he was starting at Oxford as a young professor, uh, which was quite remarkable to get a position while he's in his late 20s uh, at the most prestigious university in the world, and then he runs into Tolkien, who is equally a genius and equally um, way too young for that kind of job. He meets Tolkien, and Lewis um, was not an easy person to get along with before his conversion. And they were at a teacher's meeting at Merton College for the English department, and Lewis wrote in his diary, Tolkien has no harm in him, only needs a smack or two. And then later reflecting on the fact that they were unexpectedly able to become friends, he said, friendship with Tolkien marked down the breakdown of two old prejudices. At my first coming into the world, I had been implicitly warned never to trust a papist. Now remember, Lewis was born in Northern Ireland into a Protestant family. Never trust a papist, and at my first coming into the English faculty, explicitly warned never to trust a philologist. Um, a philologist, that sounds like something you'd find at the dentist office, uh, but it actually means someone who studies the mechanics of languages. So Tolkien was both these things, and through his close friendship with Tolkien, Lewis found God and became a Christian. 
They also influenced each other intellectually on the nature of language, imagination, myth, and religion. And Lewis provided what Tolkien later called a matchless gift. And Tolkien said this, the unpayable debt that I owe to Lewis was not influence as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for long my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. But for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. And Lewis's prayer when he first became a Christian, so much expecting that it was just going to be like uh, that look down song at the beginning of Les Miserables, just awful, everyday drudgery, horror. And it wasn't at all. It was joy. And then God started surprising him by bringing these kinds of friends that he never thought the idea that Lewis, the grandson of a Protestant clergyman in Northern Ireland, would become best friends with a Roman Catholic, a devout Roman Catholic, is very surprising. So that brings us to the next point, which is that God's time and our time are not at all the same. And this is a huge theme in Lewis's writings. I was so tempted to go off on this, and I just decided not to. So you may be thankful for that. Uh, but in the, in the story, we find this section. Hurry up and get him untied, said the girl. We can talk afterwards. Then she added, turning to Tyrion, I'm sorry we've been so long. We came the moment we could. While she was speaking, the boy had produced a knife from his pocket and was quickly cutting the king's bonds. Too quickly, in fact, for the king was so stiff and numb that when the last cord was cut, he fell forward on his hands and knees. He couldn't get up again until he brought some life back into his legs by a good rubbing. I say, said the girl, it was you, wasn't it, who appeared to us that night when we were all at supper, nearly a week ago. A week, fair maid, said Tyrion. My dream led me into your world scarce ten minutes since. It's the usual muddle about times, Poles, said the boy. I remember now, said Tyrion, that too comes in all the old tales. The time of your strange land is different from ours. And part of the reason that this is so important is what we were talking about in our last class about Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that the way that the time works in the kingdom of God is not the way that it works in our world. And we have to stop trying to put God onto a um, railroad timetable, if you will. We can't predict what he's going to do. So some scripture that reinforces that idea. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There's that wait word again. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. 
And what I will say is that if you want to get a little bit of idea about Lewis's notions of time, there's a great section in Mere Christianity about that that I may include in the email. Uh, but the basic idea is that God is outside of time. It's sort of like if you went to Charleston Place Hotel, uh, which for those of you in podcast land is a very elegant, lovely hotel in the historic district here, and it has a big curving staircase. And at Christmas time, they put up this huge model train village there with mountains and cars and railroad stations and people, and there are all these different moving parts. And what Lewis would say is that God is like standing on the landing of the staircase, and he's watching all of that, and he's making all of it happen, but he's not in it. He is over it. He can see all of it. He can see the train leaving the station and the other one arriving on the other side all at the same time. So he sees all of it at once. If that is making your head hurt, just don't think about it. So wisdom, wisdom, now that's an important word. Wisdom is a word that's all over scripture. Uh, it's really related to uh, chronological snobbery, which we've been talking about. Wisdom typically means great knowledge and experience that has come from someone older and wiser than you, either that you're in relationship with or that's been passed down through learning and books. So we see this passage in the book. And now, Tyrion said at the end, I am going to a certain tower, one of three that were built in my grandsire's time to guard Lantern Waste against certain perilous outlaws who dwelled there in his day. By Aslan's goodwill, I was not robbed of my keys. In that tower, we shall find store of weapons and mail and some victuals also, though no better than dried biscuit. There also we can lie safe while we make our plans. And so we see that these towers were constructed on this frontier. Lantern Waste is a frontier of Narnia, and there had been some problems that they had solved, but they thought just because we solved this now doesn't mean that this might not happen again in the future. So it would be wise for us to take some of our efforts and funds and to build these watchtowers and to prepare them just in case we might at some point need them. Now just think about the story as we go farther along. If those guard towers had not been there, um, this book would have ended in chapter five because Tyrion and these children would have been caught by the Calermines and that would have been the end of the story. But this provision that was made generations before is what saved the day. So some scripture. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, that is a verse that is all over the New Testament with all sorts of imagery that we are to be prepared, we are to watch, we are to be ready, because we do not know when the Lord will come. Then this great passage from Hebrews by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then that great parable, then the kingdom of heaven 
will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And presumably you know the rest of the story that the bridegroom did come and they were not ready. And part of what makes us so bad, we, we hear this parable and we sometimes feel sort of sorry for these ones that didn't bring oil. But let me just disabuse you of that pity. Uh, because basically what's going on here, these 10 virgins, they are bridesmaids. The only job they have, just, just let's move this parable to St. Philip's Church. Uh, there are 10 girls who are coming for a wedding at St. Philip's. And the only thing they have to do, and they've been well rehearsed by Joanna from our wedding guild, all they have to do in the wedding is walk down the aisle at the right time, stand there, and then walk back out. It's not rocket science. <laughs> but there's one thing that's really important. They have to wear their bridesmaid's dress. So imagine showing up at the wedding 30 minutes beforehand, maybe 15 minutes before you go down the aisle, and saying, I didn't bring my bridesmaid's dress. Can I borrow yours? I mean, that's basically what's happening here. They are totally disrespect, disrespecting the bride and the groom through their lack of preparation. And then another one of these great verses, sometimes just for fun, read the verses in Proverbs about the sluggard, just because it's such a great word. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Could spend a long time talking just about that, but I won't. Uh, so, fellowship with other believers with shared experiences brings joy and insight. And this is somewhere where we're going to pause and do a little bit of a deep dive. So, they were, remember, in this dream when Tyrion has cried out to Aslan and he enters into this dream and he sees these seven people sitting there, an old man and an old woman, um, some young adults, some teenagers, and then these children. And as Tyrion says, they have on really weird clothes. Uh, of course, that's because they're wearing British clothing of the 20th century, and Tyrion is wearing royal garb that looks like something out of a cartoon to us. But he sees all of them there, and we're going to learn about what they were doing. So we have this story that is being told to Tyrion by the children. Well, those two, that being uh, Diggory and Polly, now, Diggory and Polly are the children in The Magician's Nephew who are uh, exploring in the attics and dealing with uh, their Diggory's crazy Uncle Andrew um, who's doing experiments with magic rings and they end up sort of falling into Narnia on the day that Narnia is being created. And they have amazing adventures and they become 
um, sort of the almost like Adam and Eve of Narnia, greatly revered in Narnia. And then they come back to our world and they grow up and Dickory grows to be a famous professor uh, who lives out in the country and has a big long beard and lives in this beautiful old manor house from the Middle Ages. And uh, while he is a, an old man into his house when London is evacuated, come these four children at the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they discover this wardrobe through which they enter into Narnia. And they have no idea that the professor knows anything about Narnia. Uh, the reason that the wardrobe is in his house is that Diggory brought home an apple from Narnia when he was a boy. And he planted the seeds of that apple in the garden and it grew into this magnificent tree that the leaves rustled in the breeze when there was a breeze in Narnia, not when there was a breeze in London. And the tree tragically died, but Diggory had the tree cut down and used the wood to build a wardrobe. And so that is how all of that came together. So Diggory and Polly at this point are probably in their 70s. So they have gotten everyone together. Those two got us all together, partly just for fun, so that we could all have a good jaw about Narnia, a jaw is a conversation. For of course, there's no one else we can ever talk to about things like that, but partly because the professor had a feeling that we were somehow wanted over here. Well then, you came in like a ghost or goodness knows what and nearly frightened the lives out of us and vanished without saying a word. After that, we knew for certain there was something up. There's so much packed into this little paragraph. Part of what's going on here is what unites these seven people from the 70-year-olds down to the preteen children is the fact that they have all encountered Aslan. They have all encountered Aslan and become his followers. They are united by this faith that they share and by this experience of the kingdom of Narnia that no one else has, no one else knows about. They can't talk to their school friends or anyone else that they know because they just wouldn't understand because the presence of Aslan and the presence of this kingdom change everything about their lives. And their chief joy is found in being with other people who know this story, who know Aslan, who are able to resonate with what they talk about. And this is one of the most beautiful descriptions of what the fellowship of believers is that you can find in fiction. It's just a short little thing. But how true is it that the fellowship that we experience with other believers, people who don't know Jesus, who don't understand anything of the kingdom of God, we may love them and enjoy being with them, but it is not the same. And so they were clearly hungering for being able to be together. And notice that this is a group of people of all different ages. This is not the 22-year-old single Sunday school class. This is the body of Christ across generations all being together and sharing their experiences together. 
says some scripture about this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, let me just say a word about that. You may think, ooh. <laughs> I mean, greasy oil running down. Uh, no, thank you. Uh, but what this is, remember, um, Aaron and these priests back in the day, there are no showers, there's no deodorant, none of that. And what there was was anointing oil that had a beautiful smell. But the problem was it was really expensive. So only rich people could have this kind of oil. And so to have that kind of fragrant oil that is in such quantity that it is pouring down your beard and dripping is a sign of deep, deep, deep blessing. Then uh, this from Psalm 55, we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God and the throng. And then from Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then Romans, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And then Philippians, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And part of what all these scriptures tell us is that there is joy in the fellowship of the believers and that we need that because there is encouragement there. And we live in this individualistic, narcissistic culture that says, I am enough, I am enough. I am enough. I don't need you. I am enough. Or if you're Ken in the Barbie movie, I am Kenneth. Uh, but the, the whole idea is just totally, totally wrong. We are made to be in relationship with others. And the New Testament knows nothing of solitary confinement Christianity, of one person with Jesus. It is a body of believers together. And we're gonna see this fleshed out so beautifully in this story. But this is a topic that there's much that our culture could learn from Lewis, because as you probably know, loneliness is at epidemic levels right now. Um, many nations, including the UK, have said loneliness is the number one public health problem. The UK has a cabinet level minister of loneliness. Uh, people are desperate and lonely. And Lewis, has some of the best theology of friendship that's out there. He says this in The Four Loves. Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. 
It is when two such persons discover one another, when whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings or with what would seem to us to be amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision, it is then that friendship is born and instantly they stand together in an immense solitude. And what this is saying is that when you discover somebody where there's a passion of your heart that you think nobody else gets that, and they won't even know what the words are that I'm using, and then you hear someone else talking about that, and you're just drawn to them, and then you find even more that they love the same things that you love, um, that that is where friendship begins. And Lewis really understood this. And there's a lovely tale of uh, really his first friend, who was a guy named Arthur Greaves, uh, that he met uh, when he was a young man. And Lewis had been kind of forced to go visit him because Arthur was a neighbor who was sick. So Lewis went over there kind of grumbling. And he got there, and on the bedside table was this very specific kind of arcane and wonky book about Norse mythology that was Lewis's favorite book in the entire world. And he saw it on the bedside table and he looked at Arthur and he said, you like that? <laughs> Thinking that perhaps some great aunt had given it to Arthur and he'd never read it. And Arthur's face lit up and he said, I love it. The part about uh, Balder the beautiful is dead is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard, which was Lewis's favorite part. And then it just like exploded from that. So this sort of shared interest became hugely important to Lewis. And then when he became a Christian, he saw Christian faith as the ultimate, sort of the holy grail of that interest. And so when he was writing to Charles Williams, who I'd love to talk about, but we don't have time, um, he wrote to Williams, who was another intellectual in England, and said, we have a sort of informal club called the Inklings. The qualifications, as they've informally evolved, are a tendency to write and Christianity. So that was, those were the two things, writing and Christianity. And he's way too modest here, tendency to write. These were probably... Uh, many of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Um, all of Tolkien's works were read out loud in this group, but that common interest was key. And listen to this description from one of Lewis's letters. On Thursday, we had a meeting of the Inklings. We dined at the Eastgate Hotel. I've never seen in my life Dyson so exuberant, a roaring cataract of nonsense. The bill affair afterwards consisted of a section of the new Hobbit book by Tolkien, a nativity play from Charles Williams, unusually intelligible for him and approved by all, and a chapter out of the book on the problem of pain from me. It so happened that the subject matter of the three readings formed almost a logical sequence and produced a real first-rate evening's talk of the usual wide-ranging kind, from grave to gay, from lively to severe. And it's this whole idea of this shared experience of people that are committed to the same things who are all trying to write things that talk about their faith that will reach out into the academic world that is so dry and full of pseudo-intellectualism, but will reach out in a way that is powerful. And the joy that they have being together is just palpable when you read that little excerpt. So Lewis talks a lot about friendship in The Four Loves, 
and he writes this. In a perfect friendship, this appreciative love, I think, is often so great and so firmly based that each member of the circle feels in his secret heart humbled before the rest. Sometimes he wonders what he is doing there among his betters. He is lucky beyond dessert to be in such company, especially when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in all the others. Those are the golden sessions when four or five of us, after a hard day's walk, have come to our inn. When our slippers are on, our feet spread out toward the blaze, and our drinks are at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world open itself to our minds as we talk, and no one has any claim on or any responsibility for another, but all are free men and equals as if we had first met an hour ago, while at the same time, an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Who could have deserved it? And what he's talking about here is Christian friendship. All these experiences shared by people who all love Jesus and who because of that can be totally free and open with each other and can experience the world together and share in that joy, um, just like in this chapter, having a jaw about the things that matter to them. And then from a little further in that same book, But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremony has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. They are no greater than the beauties of a thousand other men. By friendship, God opens our eyes to them. They are like all beauties derived from him through the friendship itself, so that it is his instrument for creating as well as revealing. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, And it is he who has chosen the guest. It is he we may dare to hope, who sometimes does and always should preside. Let us not reckon without our host. And part of what Lewis is getting at here is that we are built for this kind of fellowship. And that we short circuit the will of God and we short circuit the way that he desires to use our gifts when we persist and being individualistic, and we don't lean into the fellowship that God wants us to have. If you don't find yourself right now in a circle of deep Christian friends, I would encourage you to move that to the top of your prayer list, that God would open your eyes to people that he would put in your path to develop those kinds of relationships. Because we know from Lewis and Tolkien uh, what can happen. If Lewis and Tolkien had not met each other, Lewis would probably not have become a Christian. Uh, We would not have any of the books that Lewis wrote. We would not have any of the books that Tolkien wrote. We would not have a whole host of other things. God uses friendship and fellowship uh, in a very particular way. And it is really important that we lean into that. So, I'm preaching. Uh, Oh, wow. 
All right, so uh, from all of that glory, back down to obedience. Obedience involves both prayer and action. So we see this in the story. After that, we knew for certain something was up. The next question was how to get here, that is to Narnia. You can't go to Narnia just by wanting to. So we talked and talked, and at last the professor said the only way would be by the magic rings. It was by those rings that he and Aunt Polly got here long, long ago when they were only kids, years before we younger ones were born. But the rings had all been buried in the garden of a house in London. That's our big town, sire. And the house had been sold. So then the problem was how to get at them. You'll never guess what we did in the end. Peter and Edmund, that's High King Peter, the one who spoke to you, went up to London to get into the garden from the back early in the morning before people were up. And part of what you see here is they didn't see this vision of Tyrion before them and understand that Narnia needed help and then just sit there and pray, oh Lord, show us the way. They did do that, but they also took counsel, they thought, they talked, they prayed, they made a plan to actually do something. And this reminds me so much, the book of Acts is a great place to read about this kind of proactive obedience, of prayer, bathing what you're doing, but not just sitting there waiting for an explosion to move you out of your chair to get you to act. So some scripture. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dear children, let us love let us not love with words or speech only, but with actions and in truth. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly. And so he prospered. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you see this beautiful combination of prayer and action that is part and parcel of what obedience means. And then lastly, diligence and being prepared results and blessing from the story. What about some grub? This is Eustace. What about some grub? I mean, for you, sire, we too have had our breakfast, said the boy. Tyrion wondered very much what he meant by grub. But when the boy opened a bulgy satchel which he was carrying and pulled out a rather greasy and squashy packet, he understood. He was ravenously hungry, though he hadn't thought about it until that moment. There were two hard-boiled egg sandwiches and two cheese sandwiches and two with some kind of paste in them. By the time he'd eaten all six sandwiches, they had come to the bottom of the valley, and there they found a moss cliff with a little fountain bubbling out of it. And then a little further. Tyrion was determined that they should not be caught unarmed, 
and began searching the lockers, thankfully remembering that he had always been careful to have these garrison towers inspected once a year to make sure that they were stocked with all things needful. The bowstrings were there in their coverings of oiled silk. The swords and spears were greased against rust, and the armor was kept bright in its wrappings. So some scripture. This parable should sound familiar from Jesus. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then a little bit further on in Luke. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions." So this idea of diligence and being prepared is part and parcel of that same command to watch and to be ready. So often we find if you're like me in your spiritual life, we are like Scarlett O'Hara. I'll think about that tomorrow. We think, I don't need to deal with that discipline right now, or I don't need to deal with that sin, or I don't need to read that book, or I can coast through this, or I don't really need to go to Bible study, or I can skip church because I was really up late at that football game. All of those things contribute to a lack of spiritual preparedness. And you never know what is going to be required of you. You never know when that day is going to come, not necessarily the Lord's return, although it could be that, but it might be a time where someone really needs you um, and needs your spiritual counsel and wisdom. There are all sorts of ways that the Lord may call you to action. And part of what we need to do is to be diligent in being prepared even when there is no crisis on the horizon. You see that the children brought food with them Although they weren't sure what they were getting into, they were ready, they had food. Tyrion, although he wasn't expecting an invasion or the ape or any of these things, had instituted a regular program of inspecting and stocking these watchtowers. All of us who are Christians would do well to think about this type of being prepared. And I want to commend to you as we start this uh, chilly weather, we are about to enter into the season of Advent and just a couple of weeks. It'll be here before we know it. And that season of Advent is all about taking stock and preparedness. And I would encourage you to use that season well, to use that season to sort of take an audit of how things are in your spiritual life, to use some of the great devotional guides that are out there. Um, ladies in particular, I hope you're coming to hear Amy or Ewing. Um, when she comes, she is a brilliant, deeply Christian woman who has written a really wonderful Advent resource um, looking at Mary's obedience. There's so many resources out there, but use that time. When a time is given and set aside for something, um, that is the time to profit from it. And the time set aside for this class is over, um, so I'm going to close this with a word of prayer. Let us pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the love and beauty and joy that is found in your kingdom that surpasses anything that we can experience on this earth. Lord, I pray particularly tonight for this whole idea of Christian fellowship and friendship. And I pray that anyone hearing this who is experiencing loneliness and lack of Christian friends would bring that concern to you and would pray and would you, that you would put people in their path to build that fellowship. Lord, that there might be encouragement that we might spur one another on to love and good works. Lord, we thank you that you made Lewis and Tolkien's path intersect. And we thank you for the explosion of glorious things that came from that friendship that was rooted in their common faith in you. Lord, we pray that you would go with us now and that you would use us as messengers and agents of your kingdom as we hold out the word of life in this dark culture. We thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.